With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Before we begin, please note that today's episode includes content regarding sexual abuse and assault. And so we're busy. Suddenly I've like slipped into like working outside the home and being a full-time mom. And I start to notice these things like Henry's no longer clapping at first. That was the first thing I noticed. And then it was like, oh, his coordination's a little bit off when he's walking. He's tripping a little bit more. He's needing more hand-holding. He had a few signs, uh, sign language signs, and probably like 10 to 12 words. And those started slipping away. And I started talking to doctors about it. And every doctor told me nothing was wrong. And this was like probably one of the first moments where I started to know how to trust my gut and my intuition and to say like, fuck it to everyone else's idea of what's going on. I was watching my son slip away and no one would listen. I talked to four different doctors and no one would listen. And they treated me like I was making it up. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we'll be hearing from Iz Harris. We'll discover the incredible things she accomplished after that moment we just listened to, but first, we'll unpack all of the courageous work she had done leading up to it. In overcoming the wounds of childhood trauma, relentlessly advocating treatment of her son's disability, and challenging the caregiver wage gap, we'll watch Iz climb a mountain of challenges until she finds herself at the top as a self-starter, devoted mother, and creative producer. Today, she'll walk us through her journey with a refreshingly authentic and insightful voice. The same voice she's now using to inspire thousands of audience members through film journalism. So with that, let's start out where all of Izzy's creativity in Wanderlust began, exploring the natural beauty of rural Oregon and the magic of her own imagination. For majority of my younger years, I was in Oregon in this kind of idyllic town that I still like to think of as home, although we lived in other places as well. My dad was in the military. He was in the Navy. We moved every three years, sometimes every nine months. But majority of my childhood was in the Northwest. And when I think of those times, it's a lot of outside exploring, really independent Really, like, make your own fun, do your own explorations. At that time, like, we weren't coming in until it was bedtime. Filthy, just Oregonian barefoot kids. And so this was with your sisters that you were bouncing around with? Yeah, with my two sisters. And then we had this really great kind of cul-de-sac community of kids that were just as, like, scrappy and wild. I just think of, like, how my dad was raised and I'm... The kids went wild and then came home for dinner. I felt that was like a 1950s, 60s thing. Did it like stay in Oregon? (laughs) (laughs) It really did. It really did stay there. And I think part of that was the Oregonian culture. Which is what? It's, It's very earthy. All of our pastimes were outdoors. You know, everything that we did as hobbies was 
outdoors. How did you express that freedom? I was a really kind of scrappy kid. I was definitely leaned a little tomboyish. I was also extremely in my imagination. And my parents would have to be like, okay, come back down to earth and we need to do this thing. They'd have to tell me instructions like multiple times. I was just on a different wavelength (laughs) as a kid. Izzy's childhood put her on a permanently different wavelength that carried into adulthood as well, laying the foundations for a lifetime of creativity and exploration. The scrappiness, the raw, unstructured nature of her days let her youthful imagination run boundless through the mystical northwestern greenery. Her childhood is a perfect example of the nature exposure that many psychologists in developmental education advocate for. Hundreds of studies have shown that time in nature not only improves test scores and graduation rates, but also a range of brain functions, including focus, social skills, stress levels, and creativity. Izzy's days in the outdoors primed her perfectly to become the visionary and explorer she is today. While this aspect of her childhood nourished her intellectual development, a much darker aspect was thwarting her development emotionally. It was a good childhood. It was it was a normally good childhood uh, with a little bit of hard moments and trauma mixed in there. So you have this like this picture of the idyllic childhood, but at the same time throughout super early on, there again was this undercurrent that was not so idyllic. Yeah, it was darker. And I think the way that you put it as an undercurrent is spot on because my own childhood trauma was buried so deep inside me that both existed. And I think a lot of victims of abuse, which in my case, it was abuse. The brain is so expert at pushing things down and really ensuring that if you're not ready, which I was not ready, I was so little that you won't really have to face it. And so for me, it was kind of in this form of like, repressed emotions and memories, but there were definitely things I started internalizing, both from the abuse that I experienced uh, that I'm still processing through. But yeah, I think those years, I was realizing two things, uh, and they're things that no child should have to recognize. One, that I did not have safety in my own body. Two, that either I couldn't trust the adults around me or I couldn't trust myself. It was so painful to think that I couldn't trust my parents and I couldn't trust all these adults who at the time loved this perpetrator because that was so painful, the idea of that, uh, of thinking they were wrong and thinking I couldn't trust them. I decided not to trust myself. It was just like, well, if they're all saying he's good, then I'm bad. And you have to understand, like, the math of a child, it's really limited, right? Like, it's not the math that I can do now in my 30s. Did you feel like there was anyone you could talk to about this? I didn't, and that's really all that matters. Like, I like to think that if I had, then absolutely action would have been taken, and I choose to believe that. But I didn't feel safety in that. That's part of the thing that's so insidious about abuse and It's that it's so ugly and it's so shameful and it's so scary that your abuser can very 
eloquently and expertly convince you that no one would believe you. So I was abused by my grandfather. He was someone who continued to be in my life until he passed away until I was 17. Like I interacted with him at events, at reunions. But you have to understand that like I had put that in a box and it wasn't even a box that I could tap into. So for all of those years between six and 19, it was these symptoms that were just flaring up. But I had no idea. What were those symptoms? A lot of anger, a lot of anger, a lot of trust issues that now I can see made it difficult for me to really experience like closeness. Closeness must have felt impossible to achieve after these experiences. If this individual was regarded as a caretaker and family member, someone who was supposed to love her, how could Young Is trust anyone's definition of love and care? Many child victims have to struggle with this lingering distrust and confusion. 93% know their abuser personally, and if the child is under the age of six, there's a 50% chance the abuser is a family member. After being horrifically mistreated by someone you were encouraged to trust, who could possibly appear safe enough to let in? For Iz, if she ever did let them in, their bonds could only reach a certain depth before hitting the wall she had built around her past. And this wall had to be impenetrable because she needed to greet her abuser with the enthusiasm expected of a granddaughter and to listen agreeingly as her family spoke fondly of him. She kept the chaos of her pain and rage locked neatly in place, doing all that she could to ensure she didn't rock the boat. But until she could share her trauma, it remained inside like a weed, creeping into every area of her life she tried to grow. So one of the things that being an abuse victim set me up for is future experiences with sexual assault. So through ages 12 to 16, that occurred at least three times in my life. And I was unable to even like value myself or like exist enough in my body when things were really, really hard to process it. I think when you process trauma, you can exist much more fully and you're you're not protecting all of these parts. But then I was protecting percentages of me. And so no one was really getting to know me. And so I created these kind of really amazing coping mechanisms of like being a very uh, exceptional people pleaser. I was extroverted, but not really. I just knew how to protect these parts and like turn it on to make sure that those parts were like never discovered. And until they were discovered, there would be no validation or compassion to offer is for the healing she needed. Disassociation, anxiety, isolation, confusion, and high-risk behavior are all symptoms of early childhood abuse. Any of the psychological challenges Iz had to face were being managed all on her own. Until someone like a therapist or other authoritative figure can inform the victim that their difficulties have stemmed from repressed trauma, it's common for victims to blame themselves for their day-to-day struggles, causing low self-esteem. Until Iz could acknowledge the pain of her past, she would continue to cloud herself in shame and guilt. It wouldn't help that later on her peers would reinforce these same ideas. 
it's complicated because I was such a high achiever. I was getting good grades. I was, you know, class president my senior year, all of the like little shining stars. So I think there was like this really compensation of like, okay, I'm going to do these things and check these boxes to feel like I'm worthwhile, which we all do. So in high school, you had all of these boxed in parts that I wasn't actually processing through. But at the time, it was just following a uh, sexual assault that I had experienced. And I was simultaneously like I had just been elected as class president. I was in this group of friends that I really loved. Following that experience, I couldn't quite put myself back together in the way that I had been very well practiced in doing. And so I really shut down and I decided I'm not going to go to parties anymore. Why do you think you couldn't use the same mechanism, the coping mechanisms then that you did before? Those coping mechanisms failed me. I kind of just broke. I couldn't attend school very much. I, I couldn't be on time anymore to all the things. I couldn't participate in as much of the student body things. And I couldn't do the social moments with that same group of friends anymore. And those friends didn't know about what happened to me, or maybe some of them did, but they knew that I changed. That year, those friends, I'm sure frustrated by me and how, how different I was and probably feeling rejected by me as well, uh, decided to print posters to, I don't know, impeach myself. I don't know if that's even a thing, but it was mortifying. It was mortifying. And they didn't realize that in every way, it was like this outward sign, literal sign, to confirm everything I feared about myself. It was like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good. It kind of was a catalyst to recognize like, oh, this foundation is not there. I don't feel secure in any of these parts of me. And until I do, the people I was relying on, the church that I was relying on to confirm those parts of me, it wasn't going to do it anymore particularly the church, since it uh, has a way of exacerbating shame about anything, but particularly about sexual assault. Shame, secrecy, and denial of sexual assaults are not unfamiliar within powerful institutions, and the Mormon church is no exception. Rather than being a place of relief, it can serve an insurmountable barrier, with the church's loyalty extending to their reputation over vulnerable members. It's complicated and isolating because if the place you've always been told to trust isn't protecting you, who will? Now for Iz, nothing felt safe. Not school, not home, not her church, and not even her own body. The pain was inescapable and her fragile world would begin to cave in. Her mental resignation reflects the overwhelming effects of sexual assault, effects which can span anywhere from PTSD to substance abuse to eating disorders to ending one's own life. And like countless others who have experienced this kind of trauma, there's no guarantee that resources will be accessible or a support system will be available. So is grafts onto change as a remedy. When you're thinking about university, BYU is obviously steeped 
and Mormon culture. How did you feel going there and moving on from high school? I was in a relationship prior to going to BYU, a long-term relationship. And so I didn't want to go to BYU. I wanted to stay in uh, Washington where we were living at the time. My parents were just very clear. There's a very big difference in cost between a state school and BYU, which is subsidized um, by Mormon tithing. And I think there was some part of me that was like, I could really like have a clean slate between me and like the ideals of the church. And then there was a big part of me that was like, I don't want to go. I'm in love with this boy. I have all of these people here that I know. This place is familiar. Uh, but I didn't have a choice. It was a, it was a pragmatic financial decision <laughs> to, to go to BYU. But it was a whole other adventure with the uh, different social pressures that I equally gave into. You know, on the one hand with my high school, it was like party verging on like unsafe extracurriculars. And then at BYU, it was like the kind of more straight edge you are, the better. And I just, I, I, I swung pretty quickly my freshman year to trying to be the best at that. How did that relationship progress as when you entered BYU? Uh, so it didn't progress. <laughs> um, and thankfully it didn't progress. You know, a big part of my journey was that because I did not love myself at all, I chose boys at the time and, you know, men later that didn't love me either. That just felt so much safer than someone really seeing me. The relationship had been a good amount of my high school years, and I was deeply attached in every way. I was deeply dependent on this person for my own self-worth and also just existing. I mean, he had become like my the ultimate coping mechanism. And I'm sure there were good moments but the relationship became pretty dysfunctional after the first year. It was such a heartbreak. It was one of those, like, it was the heartbreak of my life. So I was outside of my dorm and I picked up my phone and he was I, upset, if you know, and uh, mentioned that he, something had happened with another girl at a frat party and I physically collapsed. Like, didn't, you know, I was conscious, but I physically, my legs gave out because it was like this fragile world I had set up to make everything work and to make me good enough was just coming crashing down. We both kind of responded in the way that couples do of like, well, you came to me, you told me, let's push through. And that kind of cycle ended up taking over a good amount of my freshman year. By the time that it was like the last conversation, I was angry enough and ready enough to say, we will never speak again. And this is over. No, we're not friends. No, we're not going to get back together. No, you're not going to have my number. I'm changing it. This is done. 
And it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. That distance allowed me to have a space where I was making new friendships and trying new things and just building small little bits of confidence. Gaining back confidence after existing in a state of codependence for so long can be trying. But as Iz leaned into her community, she gradually reclaimed the bits of herself that had been smothered under the weight of her relationship. But this process of healing was riddled with hardship. Hardship that millions of other survivors of sexual assault can identify with. Studies show that many survivors of assault end up falling into other abusive relationships and often see abusive behaviors as normal. It's a harrowing, painful subject to face head on. And while Iz can look back on it now and begin to untangle it all, at the time, she had to grapple with it on her own. The echoes of her childhood trauma were unescapable and continued to surface throughout her high school years. BYU became hope to latch onto. It was a clean slate and would ultimately introduce her to, well, someone you might have heard in a previous episode. When did you meet someone down the hall from you? August of 2009. It was fall that same year where I had these childhood friends from Oregon and they needed somewhere to live. This childhood friend, um, his mom called me and was like, can you find somewhere for my son to live? And I was like, yeah, he can live like down the hall from our apartment. And what I didn't know is through a bunch of kind of different networking that happens at BYU and on missions and in the Mormon church in general, this childhood friend had kind of networked into Johnny's childhood friendship group and that they really wanted to live together. But I walked over to his apartment and I just remember meeting Johnny and I was just immediately taken away with him. The feeling was not mutual, but (laughs) I was so taken aback by honestly, like his free way of existing. He, you could tell he just didn't care what any of us thought. And he didn't care about doing things in a certain way or in like a particularly like traditionally masculine way and I was used to that with like Oregon boys the boys that I had known because that that is a thing (laughs) but I was not used to like this degree of kind of hippie like wildness and I just was totally just staring probably and thought he was so cool And then I got started to kind of get to know him as a friend. And anyone who's familiar with like Mormon culture or BYU knows that things move at like like an insanely fast pace. The entire intention is like to get your education while simultaneously finding your life partner, ideally by like 24. It's absurd, uh, but it was very much like the culture that we were existing in. And... So we went very quickly from like meeting to, I think me probably expressing interest to like a friend, the classical thing. And, and then him asking me on a date and he took me on a very like (laughs) boring, uh, (laughs) like he was for sure putting us in this box of like friendship, you know, uh, 
intentionally with the state and we went to see like some presentation and like walked there and walked back it was so a presentation not even like like a movie it was like a church <laughs> church presentation it was oh my goodness <laughs> it was so bad and still i was just <laughs> very interested um but i still had a lot of like open wounds from my past relationship and i think for him like the least attractive thing you can do on a date is talk about like your like <laughs> dysfunctional history with someone else. And I was still kind of in that like word vomit stage of processing, like, what was this and who am I? And like, this is a really big part and thing that shaped me. And I just was like verbalizing it. And he was like, uh, I think <laughs> I I think you have a little bit of growing up to do, but I really like you as a friend. And so how did that friendship continue? Because you, because like he actually, he, he left for a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. After he kind of made a very clear <laughs> disclaimer that it would just be a friendship by telling me now infamously that uh, he thought I was attractive, but he wasn't attracted to me. <laughs> but he went to study abroad in Belgium. He was uh, doing an internship at NATO. And I had a really busy upcoming semester. I was studying special education. Luckily, I was busy because he started for some reason reaching out a lot and he interpreted my busyness as playing hard to get. That really worked in my favor because I don't think I would have been able to like conjure that up. Um, I wasn't a very expert game player, so... Then he started kind of more frequently like reaching out and uh, showing at least a pretty significant interest in being friends and close friends and talking often. And I've never been the best like long distance communicator. It's still very much not my skill. So I was kind of infrequent in my communication and that was just driving him crazy. He was like, you're supposed to like me. I'm the one who's not interested in you, you know? So I kind of flipped it on its head. And were you doing anything creatively at that point? Or was like school just taking up most of what you could do? So I was always writing and I was making videos my freshman and sophomore year of college, which was this this time period. But I had always enjoyed writing as a way of like processing my thoughts and my feelings. And because so much of our dialogue became written, every every communication was mostly over email. It gave me this like kind of a more thoughtful, less nervous way to put together my thoughts and my opinions. But yeah, outside of that, I always wrote just as kind of a stream of consciousness way to put thoughts together. And then I'd edit it. I don't know for what at the time. I guess like Johnny was one of the first people that was actually seeing this. Oh, he was the first person to ever see to see my writing. Yeah. Did he have any comments on it? Or was he using the same bluntness? Of oh, my gosh. No, he was like, I think part my writing was part of what just took him away into into falling for me. It was this really fun dynamic of being able to like, we did questions back and forth. So being able to sit on a question and then really edit down my response. And he's much more like impulsive and like, you know, he says things right away the way that he means them and with a lot of typos and a lot of like, you know, half thoughts. So we were coming at it from very different ways. Yeah. 
Um, but I loved that about him, and I think he loved the thoughtfulness in me. That's really cute. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. It was, it was really a good, awesome. It was a good love story. So as you're having all this communication, when he comes back, how has the relationship dynamic changed, or what, what did you notice changing? Oh, my gosh. I mean, by that point, we're both deeply in love with each other. Four months of communicating via email, occasionally via Skype. I am head over heels. So by the time he comes back, we met up for a close friend's wedding and it was like, we're boyfriend and girlfriend right there officially, you know? And then it was only three weeks until we were engaged to be married. Iz and Johnny's relationship move fast. Very fast. But I get the impression that Iz can sense something different about Johnny, that these online interactions were uniquely comforting and fulfilling. It was a platform for creativity, but also an active exchange of ideas with someone different. And for Iz and Johnny, it was the kind of difference that served as a compliment to the other. It sounds like a relief, honestly. A relief from the immense pressure of Mormon dating culture that was circling around them. Online, Iz was able to regain a sense of control. Her language was calculated and intentional, and she was beginning to discover a new part of herself. Yes, she was falling for Johnny, but through the process, she was uncovering love for herself, too. Soon, her whole world was going to change. So, December 28th of 2010, we got married in the same town that I had all of those beautiful memories in, where I had all of those family friends in Corvallis, Oregon. And it was in a nature center that was like a cabin um, with like gorgeous high ceilings and like full window walls. And, and it was pouring rain. And all of our family and friends at the time were there. So it was a winter day. We're surrounded by forest. We have a ceremony there. We had had the Mormon ceremony that morning. Um, and then we danced so hard, not even realizing like dancing was going to become like our thing, just going so hard on the dance floor all night. And we sang a song together that we continued to sing to our little boys at night for years, still do. So ridiculously cute. <laughs> it was beautiful. So once we went back to Provo together to finish out college, we were broke college students and Johnny had been doing a lot of filming for fun his whole life. We both had gotten jobs at the university, like multimedia tech center. And so we had free access to like the Adobe suite and, and all these cameras and and so we decided to buy our first DSLR and we actually sold blood oh my God. to pay for it. What? <laughs> like, I think it paid like $30 per session or something. I absolutely shouldn't have been doing it because I have like an autoimmune <laughs> condition. And we put our DSLR on like our new credit card. So irresponsible. Anyone who's young and listening, like do not do that. And we paid it off by donating plasma. 
Okay, so maybe paying off a credit card bill by donating plasma isn't the most ideal route to gaining access to a fancy camera, but it worked. And it certainly speaks to the determination of both Iz and Johnny. I mean, think about it. They were building a life together, a family together, with their own childhood still in the fairly recent past. I'm sure it was daunting with countless moments of instability and uncertainty, but Iz wasn't going to look back. Her past held a world that no longer existed, one that shaped her but didn't define her. Her present looked like Johnny, like a rainy Oregon day with close friends and family, like the sounds of guitar strings humming out into the cloudy night. Now, as Iz stepped forward and embraced a new chapter, the wedding bells kept chiming. You bought this camera with your blood money and like you are probably experimenting a little bit with like camera equipment. Maybe Johnny's teaching you a little bit of the things that he's learned. So luckily to build our portfolio, we were doing a lot of shoots for friends and kind of just getting around like the ba- the technical use of this camera for, for myself. And why weddings? Because there were so many There were so many weddings. They were everywhere. It was like so easily marketable. A million engaged friends. Everyone was getting married or engaged. So it was just a market that was like very obvious there. And we were doing weddings for like $200. Like wedding videos, full days of shooting, so much editing. And honestly, and this is how I learned everything from editing to filming, I was kind of just watching over his shoulder. And then I was like, oh, okay, ISO. Oh, okay. Yeah, like uh, shutter speed. Okay, yeah, yeah, F-stop. Like I was starting to like put these things together because I was so stubborn that I didn't want him actively teaching me. So I'd be like, no, 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 I'll figure it out. I always had an eye and that was really like, honestly, it's how our skill sets work very well today. And for some reason, Johnny's never really, he's never gotten too anxious about failing. And I do. So we kind of came together nicely that way too, where he was like the bulldozer. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do it. And so that first wedding had been after quite a few different practice shoots. And yeah, he, he had this kind of honestly unearned confidence uh, <laughs> in doing it that got us through for those first uh, few. And then we became pretty good and like we're making beautiful wedding films and started making them for uh, for clients, not for very much money. And then for family friends who had gorgeous weddings that became kind of the, the crown jewel of our portfolio. So in between that time, we have our first kid, we graduate college, we walk for graduation, baby in my arms, like so outrageous to think back on, we were just babies. And like a week after I had my son, I ended up having to take final, like I hadn't arranged to not have to do in-person finals, which is so crazy to think about. So I'm like walking up to campus, like, full-blown still in recovery should not be out of my bed and um and then a week after that was when we walked and we decided to move where my parents were living based off of a very loose verbal offer job which is not a real offer (laughs) we learned at uh, the navy yard in washington dc we decided to kind of pick up and move out there 
job didn't happen. So we had to move really quickly on our feet. And so we started advertising. We actually did like Google ads um, and I just figured it out. And that was probably the first sign that like I really liked business and I really liked systems. And also I was always the one driving, like, we need to charge more. No, we need to charge more. And Johnny was like, no, 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 no. And I was always like kind of in a scale mindset from the get-go. But after doing those Google ads, we booked 30 weddings in that calendar year. And it was our first year in DC. Because of the Google ads? Because of the Google ads. And so what were you thinking about, like, because I mean, this is when you also had Henry, the business is taking off. Like, how the the heck are you juggling all this? (laughs) Um, Well, luckily we're living with my parents. So there's a little bit, I mean, there's a massive security blanket there and then a little bit of support. And I think I'm panicking a little bit. Seeing that job offer fall through, I was nervous and I was very motivated to get this wedding business off the ground. So I'm thinking like the Google ads are doing really, really well. You know, you're booking tons of weddings. It's just a matter of increasing the price. And then like, sure, it's not maybe as secure as a nine to five. But if you can have that scale, it could be more profitable than a nine to five. So like, why isn't that the thought process? Well, those paychecks weren't going to come through right away. You're getting a deposit and then you're doing the work of filming it. It's scheduled way out. So the security wouldn't have been there until probably like a full year after. I wasn't raised by entrepreneurs. So the idea that like you could find security in that was like, well, how do you how do you pay for health care? Like, how do you you know, I didn't know any of those things. And then the other side of this was that Johnny and I always were spinning a lot of plates. Like we kind of functioned optimally with a lot of things going on. And the wedding business, on top of his nine to fives and attending grad school and having our first baby, it became kind of like the standard for so many years after of just like more, more, more. And only now are we learning to be like, maybe in the next couple years, we could say like less, a little bit less, you know. So it was kind of how we operated as well. What happened with the, the, the wedding business as you were looking for more secure work? Yeah, so that year we told my parents, hey, we're going to be gone 30 weekends this year. Could you help us with our new baby? And they said yes, very graciously and helped enormously. And that was the grueling learning on your feet. These weddings started to become, the rate started to become more and more and more. It really like trained us to be meticulous as filmmakers and as on the ground shooters and storytellers and honestly stylists, like you're doing so many things uh, that day. I think it's the best training grounds for like anyone who wants to be a filmmaker that there can be because it's a whirlwind. Working on a tight deadline, filming multiple angles, all while trying to tell a story does sound like a whirlwind especially when every season is considered wedding season in Provo, Utah. I mean, a huge part of BYU's culture involves seeking out a life partner, and singles are encouraged to date often, at least twice a month and at most twice a week, in order to find a partner who ideally they'll eventually stand at the altar with. 
So this push for wedlock alongside the all-knowing algorithm of Google advertising, which targets young couples searching up venues, it's not surprising that Iz and Johnny managed to book 30 weddings that year. But in the midst of the hustle, Iz and Johnny were about to be thrown into another kind of whirlwind. And one, you could argue, that would end up impacting Iz and Johnny's life much more than their wedding business. So as you are developing this like wedding business, um, Johnny's looking for more stable work. How does like Henry develop? And like, what are you noticing about Henry as maybe like the wedding stuff is like not as crazy and you're spending more time with him? For the first year, it was like everything you'd expect from early parenthood of two parents who are babies themselves who not so, you know, long ago got married. It was those sleepless nights and those like stressful moments of am I doing this right and just figuring it out, uh, realizing there's no manual. And uh, I know everyone says that, but it is a shocking reality. You're like, wait, this is a literal human and no one's no, no one's going to tell me what to do. And so we're kind of figuring that out. And by the time that he was about 15 months old and Johnny would have found himself into one of his earlier nine to fives that had very little to do with the creative work he was wanting to do, but was the only way we saw security at the time. And our son, Henry, started showing signs of kind of regression. And so we're busy. Suddenly I've like slipped into like working outside the home and being a full-time mom. And I start to notice these things like Henry's no longer clapping at first. That was the first thing I noticed. And then it was like, oh, his coordination's a little bit off when he's walking. He's tripping a little bit more. He's needing more hand-holding. He had a few signs, uh, sign language signs, and probably like 10 to 12 words. And those started slipping away. And I started talking to doctors about it and every doctor told me nothing was wrong. And this was like probably one of the first moments where I started to know how to trust my gut and my intuition and to say like, fuck it to everyone else's idea of what's going on. I was watching my son slip away and no one would listen. I talked to four different doctors and no one would listen. And they treated me like I was making it up. And context here is now regressive autism is a real diagnosis. It's, a, it's an official diagnosis. But at the time, John Hopkins had not stated that. And so all of the parents who were experiencing regression in their children were being treated like they were imagining it. It was like unimaginable to these doctors that this could be happening. So I really started researching. I had this background in special education from my degree and also in human development. And I just knew, like, this isn't right. Something's going on with his development. And he just slipped further and further. And at a certain point, it was like he was vacant. And and I want to be clear that, like, he wasn't. He was in there and, like, so much was going on in his own mind, I'm sure. But physically, in the ways that I knew how to interpret, like, his interactions with us, he was a shadow of himself. And I was terrified. And it wasn't until 2015, he was about 21 months, that we got like the official diagnosis that he was autistic. Remember that 
when he was diagnosed, I said to Johnny, like, I got to step back. Like, this is my new full-time job. This is it. I spent like six hours researching a day for weeks on end, just trying to figure out what we could do and what might be going on because it wasn't just him regressing. He was sick all the time. And he was sick, not just for a few days or a week, but for two weeks, three weeks, you know, there was so many things that were making existing as Henry incredibly traumatic that I really saw no other route. And fortunately, we had the stability for me to go all in on him. The time leading up to Henry's diagnosis, and even after that, Iz had to shift her focus from filmmaking to completely immersing herself in research. I picture late night Google searches like what is autism or signs of autism in children and then diving into all sorts of new information. One in every 68 children in the U.S. has autism and those with regressive autism begin to show symptoms of skill loss as early as 15 months. A child who used to be very talkative would suddenly stop talking or wouldn't respond when their name's called. Things we often take for granted like eye contact and coordination would begin to slip away. And Iz was watching all of this happen to Henry. Yet she was determined to help him. She used her special education degree to guide her research, speak to doctors, and advocate for her son's health, even when no one was listening. She armed herself with knowledge, just like when she taught herself to film and edit for the wedding business. But even though she took on the role of supporting her son as a full-time job, Iz soon realized something was missing. She couldn't keep doing this all on her own. How did you feel that, like, that responsibility fell on you? And also just to frame that question a little bit more, I feel like generally in in relationships, like these, like the child caring duties, like fall on women. At the time we had highly divided roles, traditional roles. Uh, I was very much the caretaker and he was the provider. And that was the context that we had been raised in both in our homes, but like in a very patriarchal religion. So when Henry was diagnosed, I took that on really without thinking that Johnny would be a significant part of it. And he was, but not in a 50-50 sense. And part of that was he was gone from nine to five. And so he missed so much. He missed the therapies and he missed any of the schooling. He missed the meetings and the doctor's appointments and so many different things that we were, we were doing. I think over time started to be resentment of that. But when we got married and when we had kids, there were conversations where I said, like, you will never come home and sit on the couch after work. I have been working all day. I have been going from like 6.30 or 5.30 when this kid woke up. So we will both jointly get through those hours from, you know, 6 p.m. on. And then we will both jointly or individually relax. So there were conversations that were trying to disrupt it, but they were kind of like beginner conversations. I We didn't really know how to communicate like and get to the root of what was going on. Like you said, this was so pervasive. It's not just in the Mormon church. It's, it, it's in everything. And so when I was frustrated and I was just like, I couldn't voice this, but at the time it was like, it's really frustrating that you don't know his medication schedule. It's really frustrating that you don't know uh, his doctor's It's frustrating that you're not on the phone, on hold, scheduling these things. And it took me reading a lot of things and exposing myself to a lot of women and kind of 
people who were living in more of an equal partnership to start to be able to verbalize really what I was feeling and really what I wanted. And what did you want? I really wanted an equal partnership. And I did not know how to get there. And I didn't know how to value what I was doing as a mother working in the home enough to assert the need for that. I felt like if I'm not bringing in a literal paycheck, then I can't really ask that doctor's appointments are shared. And that was the environment I was raised in. Like those things were explicitly said, your job is to create the perfect home. First, there were baby steps for years. And it was just like small things, like not sitting on the couch when you get home from work. Johnny starting to do more of the cooking, which he does all of now coming home for the important meetings so that I wasn't alone carrying the brunt of like these really important medical decisions that we were making and parenting decisions that we were making. Uh, But it wasn't until he was at Vox Media and he was producing an episode on Netflix for their Explained series. And it was on the gender wage gap. And he interviewed Hillary Clinton for this and other people who were kind of just badasses in terms of like how they thought about and approached equality. And he learned a lot about not just the gender wage gap, but the caregiver wage gap and started to see like, oh, I've been thinking this is equal because it's the like farthest anyone I know has swung. When your whole circle is existing and like less equal partnerships or entirely unequal partnerships, you think you're doing pretty good. To his credit, was able to see it and put together a lot of the rants that I had just kind of flung his direction over the years. He was able to like line up the dots and be like, oh, this this is what you're saying. You're saying you want to be working. You're saying you need childcare to be able to do that. That was a that was a literal conversation that had to happen. By the time that I was really able to say, hey, we got to sit down and talk. I want to be working again. Henry is in a really great place. He's got these services. We're doing good. We have a flow. I want to try something. I want to get back to filmmaking, but I really need help. And I was like tentative, like maybe just part time. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, and he was just like full time. Let's do full time. Like he swung so much further than where I was at because he was just like, holy, like his mind was starting to really open to this. And that was like a big gateway for us to really start to establish 50-50 partnership. Establishing a 50-50 partnership was certainly a step in the right direction. The belief that there should be different roles based on gender is something commonly referred to as heteronormative ideology. And it's something that has been so ingrained into society that we don't even recognize it as a form of gender discrimination. Heteronormative ideology is basically when something is considered a guy thing, like being an engineer, while being a nurse has long been thought of as women's work. In the workforce, the phrase equal pay for equal work was created to ensure that women are not paid less than men simply for being women. But research shows that the pay gap isn't so much about being a woman, but also about being a mother. Mothers average nine more hours than men on childcare and housework. And for working mothers, that's the equivalent of having another full-time job. In the U.S., there are three times as many single moms than single dads. And the issue stems from the idea that women are being seen as caretakers, while men are being seen as providers. 
in the Netflix episode that Johnny worked on, it was emphasized that the way towards closing the wage gap and therefore gender discrimination lies in thinking of men and women both as caregivers and breadwinners, that there's a 50-50 partnership between the two. And not only does this type of thinking alter the way we view family, but as is, we'll soon discover, it also creates leeway for new opportunities. So what did that work look like for you? Uh, It was like 2018, maybe late 2017, that I really wanted to start filmmaking again. I had no idea. We had kind of wound down our wedding filmmaking business, unless it was a travel opportunity. I just knew, like, I want to do something creative. I'm going to take my filmmaking chops, take my, like, styling chops, and I'm going to try to start a business where I can tell stories about local makers, like leather goods makers or soap makers or anyone who's making something like I'm going to like go, I'm going to film, I'm going to interview, and I'm going to put together the most beautiful brand story that they can have on their website. So I started doing that. I probably should have been charging, but I didn't see my experience quite accurately yet that all those years of filmmaking and editing so many years (laughs) I know but when you're coming back into the workforce it's so intimidating and I just thought like I'll do anything so I at first was doing this for like exchange of product so I'd get like a leather bag for like this film and this enormous amount of effort but I was learning a lot I was learning how to do formal interviews, how to light, how to monitor audio, how to really hone an image and a a story in a film that I could get more creative with than a wedding film because it wasn't the same story every time. And I was loving it for about a month. And then I just felt like I was so unable to hold my attention on something because I was so excited to be doing it again that I was like, buy weddings, buy brand stories, see you later. I'm going to start making these like 60 second travel edits of our little adventures that were going on. These weren't to show really anyone at the time. I was only using social media in the way that you do with friends. Then all of these creators, this kind of creative maker community had become friends and they told their creator community and their creator community. And suddenly there was just like a little group who were like, we want to see another one. This was really great. Wow, look at the editing. Wow, look at the filming. This made me feel something. And I was like, I think I could do this. Like, I think, and you have to understand, I didn't know what travel vloggers, I didn't know what vloggers were. I didn't watch YouTube. Sounds hard to believe now, but I really didn't. So I didn't know people could make money creating things around travel. That was like unbelievable, you know, like unfathomable. I couldn't even get there. And so I started Googling, like, making money traveling, like, (laughs) literally, it's just starting, like, and then I was like, making money traveling photo, making money traveling video. And I discovered, like, bloggers first. And I called Johnny, and I was like, I'm going to be a travel blogger. And he was like, you mean vlogger? And I was like, sure, whatever. I'm going to do it. Like, I didn't understand the distinction. And he was like, well, you've never watched a vlog. And I was like, don't worry about it. I got it. Like, I'm going to do this. I don't know why I felt like I needed to call him in the middle of his workday. But I was like, this is a moment. This is going to change things. I'm going to do this thing. And so he came home. He kind of introduced me to like 
vlogging. By this point, I knew there were travel bloggers. At the time, there were travel like creators. The term influencer didn't exist. And he shows me Casey Neistat. And I was like, that, that's what I'm going to do. And so I said to Johnny, I was like, as of January, I am going to make two videos a week. And I did that the entire year. And I was like, if I can hit 10,000 subscribers, I'll keep going for another year. And I'm going to look at this. I'm going to give this to myself as grad school. Johnny got to dedicate those two years to extend the learning. Like, I'm going to do that here. And I'm going to invest. I'm going to invest in traveling. I'm going to invest in adventuring. I'm going to invest in gear and in learning. And I think it was like November of the next year that I hit 10,000 subscribers. And I was with my family. I think it must have been Thanksgiving. And like all of them like erupted, jumping up and down. We were in the middle of a national park, like just like freaking out, videoing me. I'm mortified, but also so excited and so shocked and like, okay, I'm going to do it another year. Like, let's see what we can do here. And by not boxing herself in, Iz was once again able to immerse herself in a world of research, this time involving travel, YouTube, and the vlogs of Casey Neistat. Casey is a famed YouTuber with over 12 million subscribers whose videos set a new standard for vlogging by infusing seemingly effortless storytelling with everyday life. Vlogs following Casey's morning routine as he makes coffee or instances of him being a dad with his kids were carefully studied by Iz. And by watching hundreds of Neistat's videos, Iz could use that same attention to detail and work ethic she used in helping her son to teach herself how to film, edit, and create travel vlogs. It's that dedication that helped her reach her 10,000 subscriber goal that November. And it will be that same dedication that would drive her to not only create engaging content, but a community of vulnerability and connection. And so that next year, I think I started to experiment more with like showing myself and our life and mental health and my own thoughts. Was that like vulnerability on the internet hard? Like, was it like a slow process to be able to tell? Because I like you've told some really raw stories. Yeah, it was a gradual process. Uh, When I first started vlogging, I had to wear sunglasses because I couldn't look at the camera. So I was just like mortified to even be like seen, you know, and connect in that way. A classic Casey move too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, it works, you know. And then I wouldn't say it was hard until later. I never shared anything that I was processing right then. And that was really important to me to like do hours of therapy and like months or years of processing before I went public with what I was going through. And this was during years where I was unpacking a lot of what happened in my childhood and over those years. And this started to become a very cathartic way to put those thoughts in the same way that that I did with the emails to Johnny into words and to be heard, especially with like the traumas that I suffered so much of the compound trauma for victims is that you are not heard. You are not heard. No one is listening and no one is there to tell. This process after processing and feeling safe enough to share was really therapeutic and cathartic for me. I didn't expect the response that I received of so many people relating and processing with me and feeling seen and heard and seeking help and telling their partners that they weren't doing well. That was like, What is happening? 
Well, it's really cool when like you can just tell your own story and that's enough inspiration for a bunch of other people. Like I, I, I was just reading comments on your video today about like a letter to your 20s. And I read this this comment where it's like, I'm in Canada. I'm 17. I'm depressed. This like makes me feel better. This makes me feel that things are going to be okay. It's like the truest expression of yourself. And that truest expression is like doing good in the world. Like it must be an amazing feeling. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that. I I do feel like part of that naivety and going into YouTube and not knowing how to be a vlogger at all. And I made like comedy pieces about not being a real vlogger because I like had no idea what I was doing. Part of of that was I didn't know to show up in a manicured way. That sounds so disconnected now because I know social media so well, but that was what got my work noticed was showing up like straight out of bed or like not putting myself together or curating my life or kind of telling half truths. All of that kind of vulnerability and being like, this is who I really am was kind of accidental. It was like, I just, I don't know how to show up as anyone else, you know? I think over the years, I learned to rein that in a little bit and like not share as much of myself because there is a consequence to that. But in those early years, I was like throwing it all at the wall and just kind of, I didn't think people would watch. I really didn't think like very many people would watch. So it didn't feel too high pressure. It was, it was a good moment. By following her passions, Iz was able to create a platform that people could relate to. One that advocated for mental health. People could watch her videos and immerse themselves in words of empowerment visuals that inspire, and stories that communicate empathy. Studies have shown that the retelling of a traumatic experience can hold incredible healing power by helping the brain reorganize traumatic events. In doing this, levels of distress decrease, memories become less triggering, and many survivors find strength and closure in sharing these events. And just like Iz found her own catharsis in creating content, her audience too could begin to make sense of the things they had been through and hopefully come out stronger. Iz's content made her voice heard, and through that became the voice of many. And from that desire to help educate and connect came the creation of what would soon become Iz's next project, Bright Trip. Why did you feel the need to start something uh, new? Yeah, so so much of what I was making was travel focused. We were traveling a lot with our son, Henry, um, and finding that it was really amazing for him that he loved all of the sensory and stimulation and newness. And we would notice these kind of language spurts after. And so I became hooked, you know, and on it, I was like, okay, like every month we're going to go somewhere and really kind of putting everything I was making into YouTube back into being able to do that. And in the midst of all of that, my husband, who was still at at Vox.com at the time, was making his series called Borders. And we went to Hong Kong for that. And I created a couple food vlogs, you know, just like, again, very uncomposed (laughs) vlogs. I mean, just so much unfiltered personality. And Eater approached me, a sister company to Vox.com, and asked me about producing a travel and food show. And I was really lucky. Uh, The two women who were in leadership at the time were really eager to like understand what I did and and really amplify this experience of like a woman 
traveling and becoming this expert in this thing and bringing her kids along. And it was like such a shock that this opportunity was coming my way. And it was an enormous game changer for me to participate in more journalistic content and to really challenge my production chops. Because before it had been so raw and like this had to be a little bit more produced, I imagine. Yeah, it had to be researched. You, ha- I had to make connections ahead of time, do weeks of pre-production, connecting with their team, their experts, really like honing in on understanding. But we went on to do season two in Taiwan. And, and that was where I got to really say like, OK, I learned a lot. Now I'm going to do it better. And around that time, Borders was doing really well. Travel Eat Repeat was doing great. And I was having so much fun with it and kind of making a name for myself in the more traditional travel industry. And our now co-founder of Bright Trip approached Johnny and me. He emailed, he cold emailed us and he was like, I have a meeting with Lonely Planet. I want to do something with you guys involving them. Let's chat. The idea of a meeting with Lonely Planet was like, okay, yeah, let's take this. So Andrew is just like a fearless go-getter. He comes to our studio. I'm not a big part of this pitch. And I'm just, I have one headphone off and I'm like listening. I'm like, this is a good idea. That was like the first conversation of like what became a huge part of all of our lives, our day-to-day hours and hours and hours and hours each week into the evenings, you know, Bright Trip became one of our main focuses very quickly after that. Yeah. It just applies like all your strengths. And like, I feel like you guys are so good at that. And now you get an opportunity to create another business around it. Like it just, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And Andrew had this background in education technology. He had a platform It was like a mind melt of like really trusting each other in our own individual expertise. Andrew has always been phenomenal at being like, you guys craft the content, create the content, make it something you would be proud of. And it just started to take shape. And we had no idea what we were doing as with everything else. (laughs) But you jumped into it. (laughs) We spent 10 days in Tokyo producing a course. We brought our kids because we were like, we should have a Tokyo with kids chapter, which is great. But also producing for 10 days straight with two kids, it's just not the best idea for your first course production. But we were like, let's do it. Like we just kind of all dove in. But we've learned so much. We've developed this library. We've developed this community around it. We get to like exist in these things that don't have so much to do with like who we are as people, but still with all of our passions of filmmaking and storytelling and travel. It's been really great. We're getting a front row seat to the evolution of Iz's passions and how they've developed into these positive outlets beyond just the craft. Let's look at travel. Like for Iz, it's more than just exploring new countries and cities. It's an immersive experience that helps her and her family grow. In season one of Travel Eat Repeat, Iz leads her audience to the streets of Portugal. Guided by food, they dove headfirst into the country's culture. Eating pastries, seafood, and Portuguese sandwiches, Iz takes us into this new world. And as a mother, she guides her son. And autism isn't a one-size-fits-all diagnosis, but it typically shows up in sensory processing. More often than not, people with autism are very sensitive to their surroundings. It can show up in the texture of clothing, loud noises, and crowded spaces. This diagnosis seems like it would hold the entire Harris family back. But traveling 
is where Henry thrives. He takes after his parents. He's excited by new places and loves to take in the world around him. Henry is somewhat of an anomaly in the world of autism, and Iz and Johnny have been able to help him create an environment where he can grow. Through her travel shows and blogs, Iz has been able to bring her family and audience to new places around the world. But what happens to that passion when the world shuts down? We had put so much of ourselves into this, into these products, into expanding our course library. We were getting traction. We had announced this to our audiences. We were making sales. People were really getting excited about Bright Trip as a product. And then the pandemic struck and we didn't really understand, as most people didn't, what was happening. We were supposed to be in four countries in April that year, and two of them were to produce two new courses. We didn't cancel that until very soon, you know, close to those those travel dates because there were so many promises of it passing. As we started to realize, like, this is not temporary. There are now travel bans. It took us a bit to lick our wounds and just be like, what a blow to this thing that we have just put so much of ourselves into. And then to say like, okay, how can we look at this time, which is going to be much longer than we thought as a time to like refine our product, develop a community, grow more of like a a social, like following around what we're doing. Once we kind of got there, it was a lot easier to see it as like, this year is our chance to be an entirely different company, you know, by the time that travel returns. So we really focused heavily on setting up systems to kind of scale, setting up communities, because we have a community element of, of submitting courses and, you know, that anyone has something to teach. Everyone has something to teach. So it was like, okay, well, how can we build an infrastructure around that, around the course submissions and course creations and that open source thing? And how can we like kind of grow in these other ways so that when it's back, more people know who we are? The pandemic was hard, but personally, as a founder, the hardest thing for me was to feel like it was okay that I didn't know what I was doing. Why is that an issue? Because I feel like the phrase that I've heard throughout this interview is, I had no <laughs> yeah. idea what I was doing. I had yeah. no idea what I was doing. And like, does each form of I don't know what it's doing feel different? And I guess, how did this one feel different for you? This one felt different because it was in a traditional business setting. As traditional as startups can be, it was the most traditional corporate setting I'd ever been in. And so I had a lot of imposter syndrome voices just saying like, you don't know this world. You don't have the expertise to lend to this. And I was also basing my own like interpretation of reality off of assuming that Andrew and Johnny and anyone else who had started a startup knew exactly what they were doing. <laughs> like that was like, it was such an outrageous foundation to like build upon, but I was so set on it. And so this past year, like I really tried to push past that and establish an audience around what we were doing, a community. I took up really the role of of CMO, of really establishing organic marketing tactics. There was that amount of trust to experiment and to really be able to show like, I can do this. So this year, we're hoping travel's coming back. 
We're excited to be expanding our course directory. We think we'll have 50 additional courses within the next year. We are expanding into an open source way of where people can contribute like little bite-sized bits of what they know about travel. So like if you know how to like purchase a metro ticket in New York City, you could like submit a little video that like shows that process. It's this idea that like you could be taking in curated bite-sized content when you're on your way to a place about that specific place and be like, oh, now I have like six, 10, 50 more things on my list. So we're expanding into that. And then we also have um, an interview with Y Combinator. And so uh, we're hopeful and excited and we believe. Bright Trip didn't get the start as Johnny and Andrew were expecting. It opened to a world no one could have predicted. But beyond the anxiety the pandemic brought, Iz came back to a deep-rooted struggle within herself, her own self-worth. Imposter syndrome is something everyone faces, and it happens when you feel like the lowest achiever in the room, when you doubt you've achieved what you have. It's when you think it's all some big mistake. But for women, I think it goes to a whole new level. The fight for women's equality in the workforce has been a decades-long battle, but it doesn't just start at equal pay, it starts at equal opportunity. Women might feel imposter syndrome because often they might be the only woman in the room. And when you're the only one, you begin to question your worth. In corporate America, only 38% of the manager-level positions are held by women. And while Iz isn't in corporate America, she still falls victim to the self-doubt because it is so ingrained in the culture. But it's that net she built with Johnny in college that's helping her stay afloat, and the community she has now that's going to push her to succeed. What I feel about Bright Trip is like, this has the capacity to create an entire generation of travelers who are curious and care about learning about the places that they travel to. They want to know, like, what is the history of the place that I'm existing in? What, what is the history of the food? Who were the people that contributed to this? And what is the, like, kind of eclectic story of this place or this culture, these customs, and how can I better understand them and better participate in them and better experience the place that I'm that I'm in. The like ripple effects are even more exciting. So what do you think the future looks like for you? I have no idea and I know enough now to know that I have no idea what's going to happen. We do a lot of dreaming and a lot of talking. That's majority of our pillow talk is like throwing out ideas and kind of wild ideas of what we could do someday. But I do think that for the time being, I have majority of my focus on Bright Trip and really giving this idea all that I've got. I'm trying to take a step back from kind of vlogging my life, but taking a step back and saying like, I'm going to get back into like production. So I'm creating a series on this 130-year-old home that we're renovating. I'm writing chapters of a potential book. And then I'm trying to kind of find space for just being. I'm sure you have experienced this where like the busyness is wonderful and it's exhilarating, but it's also kind of a way for avoiding feelings. And I have tried really hard over the last few years to create space for feeling and healing and processing. And it's been so transformative that I really try to be mindful of 
dedicating time to weekly therapy still and working on my relationship with Johnny and trying to be present with my kids. It's a never ending balancing act, but it really helps knowing that like when I am doing more of like the holistic side of that. And again, it's a dance and it never stops and it's never perfect. And that's really not the aim. Sometimes I get into the headspace of like, do it better. But most of the time it's like, this is going to be a mess. (laughs) Like no matter what, it's going to be a mess and that's okay. But when I allow myself to do those things like therapy and talking with friends and improving my relationships with family or my partner or my kids, I do find that like I'm better for Bright Trip. I'm better in my writing. I'm better in my filmmaking because I'm just a little bit more present and like able to give those things all of me or at least more of me. At the heart of Iz's story, beyond business, I think we see the incredible growth of her as a person. Growing up in Oregon, Iz couldn't build a safe network because of her sexual assault and inability to process an incredibly hard situation. Going to college, she was able to really get in touch with her past and begin building this new network of trust with Johnny. Finding herself in her career figuratively and literally opened the world to Iz. She began to travel and explore the globe and finally built up her self-trust and inner strength. She's found that ultimately the world is unpredictable, but she's also found an anchor within herself and her family. She's reclaimed herself amidst the horrors of her past and has become someone who is a positive force for us all. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.